This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Have you ever been to one of those murder mystery dinner parties? You're dressed to the nines, you're given a, a role to play. You go and, and sit down to eat and drama unfolds. Accusations are made. Confrontations take place. It sounds exciting. I've never, I've never done that, but I've heard that it's an incredible experience. Now, I've, been, I've been to dinner parties where drama has unfolded, certainly. Maybe you've had that. <laughs> That experience with family and friends, and uh, suddenly things get a little a little dicey. Uh, maybe the the most interesting dining experience we had was in, in Cincinnati when we were in college. There was this place down down the road from the school that was a movie theater that you would go to and sit down. And there was a, a table between the the seats, and you a server would come around and you'd order a meal to eat while you were watching the movie. It was like a restaurant and a movie theater at the same time. That was that was interesting. It was a, a cool experience. We only did it once. I think it was a little pricey, but it was fun. It was interesting and exciting. When we catch up with Jesus in the conversation that we're going to evaluate today, he's at a dinner party. And at this party, drama unfolds. There are accusations made, confrontation takes place. And Jesus is at the heart of that. He is having a conversation with the host of the party who's invited him into his house. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 7 where the story is found. In verse 36, if you want to open your Bible and, and begin reading with me, uh, the words will be on the screen. If you want to use the YouVersion app, just uh, open up, search under events for Parkview Family. You'll find scripture and sermon notes there. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. Jesus said. Now, we're, we're learning from this conversation. This is the beginning of the conversation. There's more to come. We're learning from this conversation that Jesus had with Simon the Pharisee. And as we're, we're learning, as we read through, we're not only going to be learning from their interaction, we're also going to be learning from the perspective of Simon, a unique place that we might find ourselves falling into. The conversation that began actually didn't begin as a two-way conversation. It was a, a one-person conversation, Simon talking to himself. Have you ever had those moments when your internal monologue becomes external? And maybe you realize it, maybe you don't, but you're saying things out loud that probably should stay inside. You see, see a person far away coming towards you, and you think, oh, and you say something out loud. And people are like, what, what, did, what did you say? Like, um, yeah, and, and so you have to... You have to Deal with the things that you allowed to come out of your mouth. Maybe you have a, a conversation with someone who the conversation becomes 
heated, elevated. It's an argument and you walk away frustrated and you are talking and the things you're thinking are coming out of your mouth. You sound like Yosemite Sam under your breath. You're walking away, rehearsing the things you should have said, thinking about how that might've gone better, maybe talking about the person that you were arguing with. And we have a way of letting our inner monologue become outer and those thoughts that we want to be private spilling out a little bit. Isn't it funny how we think we, we are entitled to have those private thoughts, to say those private words to ourselves, to pour out our emotion? I'm just, I'm just venting a little anger. It's all right. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not talking bad about them to someone else. I'm not gossiping. I'm, this is just for me. And so that's okay, right? What, what we don't realize is that those thoughts, those words are shaping our character. Those things that we think to ourselves, those things that we say to ourselves, they're contributing to the person that we're becoming. And if those words are encouraging, we're, we're building ourselves in the image of Christ to grow. If those words are detrimental, if they're harmful, if they're hurtful, we are also molding and shaping our hearts into something else that isn't pleasing to the Lord. What, what we need to do instead of allowing ourselves this private expression is to remember that we have a constant companion in Christ, that those words that we say, those things that we think, should be the beginnings of a conversation with the Lord, the, the means of our prayer, to say, even if we're dealing with some ugly thoughts, Lord, I, I'm feeling this way about this person. <laughs> help, me, help me to deal with these reactions. Help me deal with these thoughts that I'm having. I don't want to have them. As we're walking away from a conversation, the things that we would usually gripe to ourselves about, to say to God, that really didn't happen the way I wanted it to go. Would you help me return to that conversation, return to that person and, and make amends and to apologize for the things I said that I shouldn't have said, to say the things that I neglected to say that really should have been a part of that conversation. We have an opportunity to, to grow closer to the Lord through that exchange as we open our hearts up and begin to have that bit of conversation with Jesus instead of trying to make that a, a private expression. See, for each of us, we recognize the value of talking with the Lord and allowing him to have a hand in molding and shaping our hearts. That's what happened in the life of, of Simon. Jesus stepped into his private conversation and helped him see the truth, helped him recognize that his own perspective was holding him back from drawing closer to Jesus. That's, that's what that conversation did for Simon, what it was about to do. And when we have conversations with others, those conversations help us overcome those things that are holding us back from drawing closer to Jesus. And when we, have, when we reach out into the community, when we reach out into the lives of other people, we are used by God to help remove those things that are holding other people back from drawing closer to the Lord as well. Now, Simon was dealing with some very significant things holding him back from Jesus. The first was pride. As a Pharisee, he prided himself on his ability to keep the law, to know the law, to obey the law, and, and not only that, but to watch over the people of Israel in the way that they kept the law. Now, he wasn't a policeman. He wasn't responsible for enforcing the law and taking people into custody. Uh, maybe we should think of him more like a compliance agent with an insurance company, uh, of pointing out the places that people might have been out of compliance with the law and directing them how to correct those things. Maybe we could see him more like an OSHA inspector who shows up in the midst of you doing something and saying, cease, desist, you have to correct these things to be in compliance for safety, to make sure everything happens the right way. As an expert in the law, 
He was watching and waiting, making sure people knew how to obey, how to correct the wrongs when they were out of that obedience, and even when they would need to offer sacrifices the way the law dictated them for, to make payment for the wrong in their lives and point them toward the temple. And Simon had developed himself according to the law so that he truly believed that he was earning his place for eternity, that his good work, his faithfulness to the law was making him worthy. He was dedicated to doing what was right, to living according to the code. And through that process, not only was he dealing with pride, he was dealing with a, a sense of superiority. His role as Pharisee positioned him to continually look down on the people of Israel around him who weren't obeying the law the way he was. The only way for us to look down on others is to put ourselves higher than them on a, on a position of superiority, on a pedestal, as we look down into the lives of other people. That's what Simon was doing. As he saw this woman enter into his house, imposing herself on a dinner party that he had invited Jesus to, he elevated himself and looked down on her. This woman who hadn't received an invitation, this very special dinner that, that Simon had invited Jesus to attend, and suddenly she's there interacting with his guest, imposing herself where she wasn't wanted by the host. Now, a dinner party at this day and age would have been much different than the kind of meals that we would share together in the home of, of one another. At, at this time, hospitality was the focus. And when you would host a, a party, when you host a dinner for other people, you wanted to make your home much like their home. You wanted to offer them the same kinds of comforts and amenities they would need after coming home from a long journey or a day at work. When you invited people to your house, the first thing you would do was offer water and wash their feet to cleanse off the dust of the road, to wash hands, to give them oil, maybe fragrant oil to put on their heads, to, to, to remove some of the smell of travel from being out in the sun. You know that, that weird smell you get when you've been in the sun for a little while. And you just want to make dining a pleasant experience for everybody. So you want to make sure everybody's clean and smelling fresh. And then invite them into the table. And tables at this time were low, large tables. And, and what we read is that they were reclined to eat, that Jesus went to the table and reclined to the table. I hear that and I think, lazy boy, Jesus popped himself down to the table, feet first, ready for food. But the reclining that they did for their meals was more like a bench, a padded bench, a chase lounge. They were propped up on an elbow with their heads into the table to reach for the food and to eat and talk with one another, feet out away from the table. So as this woman approached Jesus, she wasn't close to the table. She was standing far back, maybe among those who were serving and holding pitchers ready to refill cups, blending in, except that she was standing close to Jesus. She had come up where his feet were and she was weeping, crying. Not just the, the misty uh, dust in my eye when, when there's that weird part in the movie that just gets me unexpectedly or the, the, the very sentimental commercials that you, know, you, just, you can't quite see for a couple of minutes. No, this is, this is floods of tears coming down her face she is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. Can you imagine the, the, the amount of weeping that she was doing to wet Jesus' feet? The emotional response that took hold of her in the presence of Jesus. And she recognized that his feet were wet. She was purposely making them wet with her tears. And she took her hair and wiped 
his feet dry and she kissed his feet and she took a jar of perfume, a stone jar, very valuable in that day. It was a one-use kind of perfume. You had to break the neck of the bottle in order to use it. She poured that perfume out on his feet. It's an incredible expression of love and value for Jesus. And Simon, the host of that meal, looked at her, saw her weeping, saw this expression of love for Jesus. And how did he respond? <laughs> What's she doing here? Simon needed to develop a heart for those with a real spiritual need. He was so focused on his own righteousness that he could not bring himself to, to abide the presence of someone who was sinful. Now, that's a part of being a Pharisee. That's a part of being a, a, a very pious uh, Israelite, is that they viewed their righteousness as something that helped maintain their, their ritual cleanness. When they encountered sin, a, a sinful person, that sinful person was unclean, much the same way someone who had a disease or a dead body. If they came into contact with that uncleanness, they were unclean until they could go to the temple, offer sacrifices, go through a whole ritual cleansing process to become clean again. So think about the, the, the interactions that a Pharisee would have with people in the world as they went about town, as they talked with other people. They would keep their distance especially from those that they knew to be sinful, knew to be unclean. They would keep them more than arm's length. They were, they were not allowed to enter into the home of a Gentile because of the uncleanness that would surely affect them. They had such rigid protocols in the observance of their religion. And notice what this did. It separated those who were living faithful, righteous lives from those who were in sin, struggling with sin, unclean because of their faults and failures. People who very much needed to make changes in their lives, to address that sin, to, to sacrifice for that sin, to begin living without that sin, they would be looking for hope, looking for an opportunity, some means of, of freeing themselves from the condition that they're in. And think about the example that could have been given to them by those who were clean, those who were righteous, who could have encouraged them in their struggle, who could have guided them to start leaving behind some of that sin, who could have helped them live a better life, but instead looked down on them and held them at arm's length and in many ways ensured that they stayed that way because of that segregation, refusing a close relationship, refusing to mentor, to teach, to guide, from Simon's perspective, this woman had no place in his home, no place at his table, should not have had any contact with any of his guests. Pride, superiority, and arrogance. Think about the arrogance of a man who looks at this situation taking place and looks down on Jesus. Oh, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that was. And surely he would think like me. He wouldn't even allow her to touch him. That's what Simon said to himself. Thinking, this is just for me. Nobody's going to know I said this. Jesus stepped into that private conversation. Hey, Simon, let me tell you something. Oh, oh, oh. did he hear me? Can you imagine how, how terrified he would have in a cold sweat? Like, oh, oh, no. With Jesus engaging him in conversation, 
helping Simon understand the truth of where he was, the truth of his perspective, the truth of, 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 of where he had come to view himself and view the world around him. And now here's the thing that we need to, to talk about. While we're, we're thinking about this conversation Jesus had with Simon about how we can learn from Jesus and put ourselves in, in Jesus' place and guide those who are in a place where they need to come closer to the Lord, we have to also consider how easy it is for us to put our feet in the place of Simon. The pride, arrogance, self-righteousness would twist our perspective, cause us to think very highly of ourselves and to look down on other people because of their faults and failures. What is it that, that drives us to that place? What is it that, that moves us and other people to a place where, where they see themselves as superior, self-righteous? The first thing that, that brings us there is the habit of justifying our own sin, of knowing that there's things that are wrong in our lives, but refusing to acknowledge them. Instead, we, we rationalize them. We explain them away. We, we ignore the impact that they're having in our lives and the lives of other people, like, like white lies, little things that aren't quite true, but they aren't quite false either, the kinds of things that make conversation interesting. We know we shouldn't say them. We know, we know we're, we're misleading people, but it's, it's not a big a deal. Everybody does it. We don't need to acknowledge those things and, and, and start telling the truth instead of misleading. People need to surrender those to God and repent. It's just a way of talking, right? That's what, that's what justification is, of, of explaining away wrong in our lives and refusing to acknowledge that it's wrong, refusing to acknowledge that we need to be forgiven of those things and begin living differently. Now, why lies are just the beginning, but we have a way of doing that with all kinds of sin because we don't want to get rid of it, because we want it to remain in our lives. And so instead of letting the Lord work on us, letting the Holy Spirit work in our hearts to remove that sin, we say, nah, it's fine. I, I'm, I'm good enough with it. It's, it's, it's no big deal. I'm not hurting anybody. This is mine, and I don't want to let it go. And so we justify its presence, allowing it to remain. The second thing we do that brings us to a place of self-righteousness, looking down on others, is that we operate with a desire to point people away from our sin. Not only are we justifying in our own minds, now we're perpetuating that lie into the lives of other people. And like a magician who's about to do a sleight of hand for the magic trick and needs to get people's attention away from what he's doing with a big flash, loud bang, a lot of smoke, we say, hey, look over there. Don't look at this. Look at that. That person, look, can you, can you believe what they're doing? And we point out dramatically the sin in other people's lives, the way that, that we're offended by their behavior and their speech so that people aren't looking at the things that are going on in us. And we use that position to look down on others. The third thing we, we do that very easily moves us to this place is we operate with a, a drive to be good enough. We think about things that we've done wrong and, and we imagine, maybe if, I, maybe if I just do good things, I can balance out that wrong. Maybe if I spend some time serving at church, Maybe if I give some money to a, a charity, I, I, can, I can outweigh the wrong that I've done. And, and, and God will see that I'm a good person. At, at, at judgment day, when God evaluates my life, he'll, he'll see, yes, good person, come into heaven. Not wanting to acknowledge the truth that at judgment day, when God looks at us, what, what's going to make us acceptable, what's going to make us worthy in his sight is not whether or not we did enough good things. It's going to be whether or not we accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, whether we repented of our sins, confessed him as Lord and Savior, were baptized in his name, whether we're covered by the blood of Christ or not. So when God sees us, instead of seeing wrong, 
what he'll see is the perfection of the blood of Christ who washed away all of our sin. That's what makes us worthy. But if we're trying to be good enough, we're trying to earn our way into eternity, that means that we don't need Jesus because we can be good enough. That's what that mentality brings us to, the self-righteousness. The fourth thing that we do is we start to believe the misconception that forgiveness makes us better. Oh, who would believe that? It sounds, I said it out loud, it sounds kind of dumb, doesn't it? That because we've been forgiven, we're better than other people who haven't been forgiven. But think about the way that we live our lives. The way, the way that we get used to worshiping next to the same people. This community of believers who, who, are, who are good people, right? We're, we're living faithfully, right? We're, we're living to honor and worship God with our lives. And when someone comes into our midst that is different, that has things in their life that obviously are wrong, Sometimes we act this way as if there's something better about us because we were forgiven a long time ago instead of being in a place where we still need forgiveness. But we do it, forgetting what it was like to have been in that place, coming before the Lord with the weight of guilt and shame, desperately wanting to be free and, and, and coming to find an answer in Jesus to the sin in our lives, that we once were in their place. There's nothing better about us because we were forgiven years ago than the person who's being forgiven today, and yet we want to look down on them because they're not in the same place that we are. And it's a ridiculous way to look into the lives of other people. The fifth thing that brings us into this skewed perspective like Simon of self-righteousness is the feeling that we're entitled. Because of our faithfulness, we're entitled to something more because we've been obedient, because we've served, because we've sacrificed, that we should be able to indulge, that we shouldn't have to remove all the little things. Why? Because we're, why? We've earned the right to, ha- to keep this thing in our lives, haven't we? That the more that we are faithful, the more that we give, the more that we serve, the more that we take on roles of leadership, the more, longer we've been a part of the church, the longer we've been attending worship services, We view ourselves as entitled to something. And we begin to see ourselves as having a higher status, been provided some elite designation that we don't necessarily have to deal with all those things, that we can allow some things to remain because we've earned a little freedom in that area. But the more that we allow that perspective to pervade our lives, the more we become like Simon, finding ourselves struggling with his perspective. This conversation Jesus had with Simon the Pharisee is one that we ne- wouldn't necessarily expect. To see someone who had dedicated himself to his faithful obedience to the law, still needing to be drawn closer to Jesus, still needing to remove things from his life that were keeping him from the Lord. And it was his own self-righteousness that was refusing him to recognize his need for Jesus Christ because he was working out his own salvation. Now, when we encounter other people, we think about God using us to make an impact in the lives of the people of our community, reaching out and initiating conversations to help draw them to the Lord. We think most about finding someone who's never been to church, who doesn't know anything about Jesus, and and introducing them to the Lord, helping them to accept Christ as Lord and Savior for the first time. And and we think about what that would be like. Rarely do we think about these kinds of conversations, drawing people closer to the Lord, as, as a conversation we would have with someone who's been a Christian for a long time. Maybe someone who's worshiping with you this morning, having lunch with with someone who has been faithfully attending a church for years. And yet, you know, even though they have been practicing their religion, 
there is something keeping them from growing in their relationship with Jesus. And God has positioned you to help them recognize that obstacle and remove it, to help have you positioned to talk with them about what they need to do to let the Lord work in their lives to bring about change that will then draw them closer to him. Jesus used a story to intervene in Simon's life, to present truth to him in a way that he could understand it and, and then make application in his life. And so the example we have from Jesus is that when we are having one of these conversations, when we are helping another Christian grow, one of the ways that we need to do that is instead of just immediately confronting the thing that we think is wrong, by talking about the topic that we need to address and then leading that person to make their own conclusions about the changes that the Lord needs to make in them to remove those barriers, to remove those obstacles so that they can grow closer to him. Imagine if you were having lunch with another believer who is just feeling stagnant in their faith, who attends church every Sunday, tithes faithfully, and yet even though they're fulfilling all those religious obligations, they just don't feel close to God. Maybe you would conclude very quickly that their personal devotional life is, is not where it needs to be. They're not spending time reading the Word. They're not spending time praying. not spending time growing closer to God. The, the most obvious thing to do would be to say, hey, maybe you should read your Bible, and that'll help a lot. That's true, but it's not very helpful. You think about where you would be in that position if you were having lunch with someone and they looked you in the eye and said, yeah, 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 I hear that you're feeling far from God. Just read your Bible more. What are you going to do? <laughs> okay. No. What we need to do first is begin talking about the topic. Present a, a benign conversation so that they can begin to draw their own conclusions about the need for change. And we begin talking about what our personal devotional life is like, about the thing that we read that morning and how God is teaching us and growing us as we've been thinking about that passage all day, as we've, we've been praying over that passage and, and talking to God about our response to it, how we didn't quite like reading those words, how they were uncomfortable for us. And yet, as the day is progressing, we're, we're coming to an understanding of, of the changes that need to take place in our life and, and how how valuable that time with God has become to us because of the way that he is shaping and molding our lives, drawing us in, deepening our faith, and how, how, how we would never give that time up for anything. And after, after talking about our experience, then, then present a question about what's happening to them as they read the Bible, to give them an opportunity to respond. Rather than, than direct confrontation, talking about a topic and then giving them room to make their own conclusions and speak their own conclusions. Sometimes these conversations that we're led to are less like evangelism and more like accountability as we connect with other believers and, and help them see their need to overcome their own perspective and draw close to the Lord. Sometimes we need to have those conversations as well. We need to have faithful friends intervene in our lives to help us see the reality of truth that we have been Neglecting to help us see those those ideas that that we've allowed to become twisted in our minds, and help help remove those barriers and allow the Lord to make changes in us, so that we can then draw closer to Him. Jesus presented this idea to Simon in a story, and then he moved on to confrontation. Verse forty four, we hear this confrontation. 
Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. She's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And in the process of this confrontation, Jesus demonstrates the value of compassion and forgiveness, providing for Simon the example that he needs to follow, pointing to the barriers in his life. Jesus pointed Simon to recognize the loving response this woman demonstrated toward Jesus, the gratitude she had toward him, the love she expressed as she wept over that experience in his presence. And as he was doing that, Jesus pointed out to Simon how he had neglected even to show hospitality. There was no loving act, no loving care given to Jesus from the host of the party. And so Jesus confronted Simon with the truth, with an accurate view of the situation, with an accurate view of what sin forgiveness looks like. And as we hear the stories, we hear these conversations, we read the story that Jesus said out loud to Simon, it confronts us with the reality of an accurate view of sin and forgiveness that we probably need to be reminded of. Simon certainly did. The reality of sin and forgiveness is that all sin is wrong. When I sin, in any way, I'm in need of forgiveness. Now, mentally I can agree with that. But emotionally, I think about sin in, in, in varying degrees. There are some sins that feel like small sins, negligible sins, like white lies. There are other sins that seem bigger, seem more severe. Why? Because they have a greater impact. They have consequences. They're destructive. They harm the people in my life. They cause betrayal and hurt. And those sins feel much greater, much bigger than the little sins. The reality is that all sin, any sin, makes me guilty. that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that whenever sin is present in our lives, whether it's small or great, that sin makes us guilty. Breaking God's law makes us a lawbreaker. Now, it doesn't require a certain amount of sin. You can't sin five times and then the sixth time become guilty of sin. No, no. every sin makes you guilty of sin. And every sin that we have, we find ourselves in need of forgiveness. We're guilty in a way that we cannot overcome. The only means of overcoming that sin is the forgiveness that comes by the blood of Jesus Christ, the grace that was poured out when he sacrificed himself on the cross. And so we think in terms of the story that Jesus told to confront Simon with the truth. Both of the men who owed money, one 500 denarii, one 50 denarii, both of them were in debt. Neither one of them had a way to pay for their debt. When the creditor forgave that debt, he changed their status from being indebted to being debt-free. When he forgave their debt, he moved them from being indebted to being debt-free. It didn't matter how much they owed. Their status changed in the same way. That's the reality of sin and forgiveness. We also need to be confronted with an accurate view of our response to Jesus. That when we sin, when we are forgiven of that sin, it, it, it 
produces an emotional response in us. Gratitude. We are grateful. It produces other emotions in us. Joy. Peace. Freedom. Experiencing what it is to be forgiven. We also have to be aware of the, the further emotional response we have. That when we feel the significance of the consequences of sin, and that sin is forgiven, we feel grateful in a very significant way. When we ha- are overwhelmed with the weight of guilt and shame because of the wrong that we have done, and Jesus forgives that sin and washes us clean by his blood, we feel overwhelmingly grateful because we have been freed from the weight of that guilt and shame. When we've told a little white lie, we want to say, that didn't matter. I don't even need, why, why would I even confess that to the Lord? Why would, I, why would I repent of that thing? I didn't hurt anybody. No one even knows that I lied. It doesn't matter. But that wrong has made us guilty in the same way any other sin has made us guilty. And when we refuse to surrender it to the Lord, we reject his grace and forgiveness. If we repent of it, if we ask for forgiveness and we're forgiven of that tiny thing, we don't even feel grateful about it. It is a run-of-the-mill kind of sin. We forget that it makes us as guilty as any other sin. We forget about the, the cost that Jesus paid to forgive us of that sin. We forget about the agony of the cross. We forget about his blood pouring out to bring about grace. And we think, ah, it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. I don't even need to be grateful when I'm forgiven. Notice the story. Two men in debt owed different amounts. One five hundred, one fifty. Paying back their debt would have cost them a different amount. The one who had 500 denarii to pay back would have had to sacrifice and scrimp and save to come up with the money over a long period of time to pay back his debt. The one who owed 50? Eh. Yeah, he didn't have the money to pay for it, but it wouldn't take him long to find that money and pay off his debt. And so when those debts were canceled, the response, the emotional response of those two men would have been different. The one who owed a significant amount would have been overwhelmed with joy of having his slate wiped clean. And the one who owed a little would have been glad for it, but may not have truly lived in that gratitude in response to the forgiveness that he experienced. An appropriate view of sin and forgiveness helps us overcome our feelings about sin and understand the incredible gift that we've been given through Jesus Christ. To truly be grateful for his sacrifice, to truly be grateful for his presence in our lives, and to want to live for him, to strive to please him as an act of love, as an act of gratitude. To corral our thoughts about forgiveness that that are skewed, that are out of alignment. We don't, we don't want to come to a place of forgiveness and, and look at other people who have, who have been forgiven a, a, a huge amount of sin and think, well, that's not fair. Why did they get to do so much more and still be forgiven when I only did this? That's, that, that's not right. I, I should go out and sin some more so that I can be forgiven of more. We, neither do we 
look down on those who have been forgiven more and think that they are less of a person because they have had such experiences in their life that they need that forgiveness. And we look down on them because we don't think that we need it any more than they do. When we have an appropriate view of sin, we recognize that we stand in the same place before the Lord, guilty of sin. And God does the same thing for every one of us by providing forgiveness through the blood of Christ. He brings about freedom from sin. He brings about joy and peace. And he provides the means for us to enter into relationship with him, having that obstacle of sin removed from our lives, having that wrong wiped away, cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we gain an appropriate view of what our lives look like in him. We also gain an appropriate view of what our faithful living is. It is not an obligation to make payment for the sacrifice of Jesus. We can never do enough to pay back the sacrifice that he made. It is not something that earns our place for eternity. We cannot be good enough to attain eternity. Why? Because any sin is wrong and makes us guilty. And as soon as we have failed in any way, we remove ourselves from the possibility of perfection. We need a Savior. And we find that Savior in the perfect example of Jesus Christ. And when we live for him, we live our lives as a loving expression to the Lord. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Like this woman who was overwhelmed with emotion in the presence of Jesus. She expressed her love to him genuinely because of what he, done, he had done for her. And so we come to the, the end of this exchange. We come to the end of this story. We've been talking a lot about sin and forgiveness. What about the conversation? What about Jesus and Simon that we're, we're learning from and the way that we reach into the lives of other people and help them grow? And here, here is the thing that we need to learn. Simon's religion was a very personal experience. It was all about him being righteous, being good enough. And he was working very hard to earn his favor with God. Sometimes we get in that place. where We get, we get distracted from what God is calling us to do with our lives. And we, we think about our, our solitary experience with the Lord. And, and we, we shut out other people and we think very specifically about how we can grow. But what we need to do, like Simon, is to open up our hearts to the people around us. To care about those who are hurting and in need of Jesus. To care about people in our lives. And sometimes we have the opportunity to, to have conversations. To help open up the lives of other Christians. To help them see what God is calling them to do. Sometimes we have other people have those conversations with us. And they help us see our need to open up our lives and care for the people around us. In either case, what we discover is that our faith grows when we share it. Our love for God grows when we express it to other people. And our experience with God deepens as we act on our faith, not keeping it as a private experience, but sharing it with the people around us by caring about them in the name of Christ and helping them draw closer to him. And when we get too focused on me, when we get so, so wrapped up in our own self-righteousness, what we need to do is let all those things go Surrender them to the Lord and allow him to draw us in. And in the process, open our lives up to the people around us who are depending on us to help them draw closer to the Lord as well. Would you please join me in prayer? God, we thank you for the example we have in you. God, we thank you for the, the conversations that take place in Scripture that we learn from. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the people around us.
that you would help us see the needs that we can help meet, the, the, the opportunities that, that you provide for us to, to, to prayerfully talk to other people about removing the obstacles in their lives so they can draw closer to you. God, I pray that you would help us see those opportunities and that you would provide the right means for us to step into those, to be used by you to draw people in. Lord, I thank you for the way that you teach us. I thank you for the way that you guide us. I thank you for the way that you provide these moments in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.